And amen. Well, last week we began our study together, studying the biblical doctrine of forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? How does a sinner ask for forgiveness? How and when should a person grant forgiveness? These are all relevant issues that the Word of God addresses with extraordinary clarity. As I said last time, I don't think it's possible to overstate the importance of this issue. We are all sinners, everyone. And even after the miracle of salvation, we all sin against God. We all sin against one another. And when we sin, fellowship with God and fellowship with men is disrupted and often broken and in need of reconciliation. But every one of us in this room today knows people who are living with irreconcilable relationships, or so they seem. We've all been there. We all know how miserable an existence that is. We know what it's like to live with a wife or husband where their sin has been committed, but no biblical resolution has been sought, and therefore no biblical resolution has been granted. We've seen and perhaps we've experienced the tension that engulfs a family when a teenager and his dad or mom live on opposite sides of an invisible wall. We've seen churches split because their members refuse to deal with sin in a manner that pleases the Lord. But most of the time, it doesn't have to be that way. Most of the time, it doesn't have to be that way. Thankfully, God has provided us with the grace we need to reconcile with one another and with himself, regardless of who sinned or how badly. There is a remedy for sin, and it's called forgiveness. Now, last week, we talked about transactional forgiveness. We learned that there are four aspects of biblical forgiveness, and we invested all of our time last week speaking exclusively about the first one, namely transactional forgiveness. And just by way of review, transactional forgiveness comes from Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, and you can turn there. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. And it reads, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And then Jesus adds, even if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And we call this transactional forgiveness because there is a God-ordained transaction that takes place between the person who sinned and the one who was sinned against. First, the person sinned against comes and represents his case in a gracious, and we learned last week, a tentative way. In response, the sinner confesses his sin, identifying it with a biblical label, acknowledging that he has sinned against God and against this person and asks for forgiveness. The one sinned against then graciously grants the forgiveness, remembering the great debt that God forgave him. In Christ. And by the way, this is exactly what happens whenever a person becomes a child of God, whenever a person is born again from above. First, the Holy Spirit comes and presents his case against the sinner. He uses the law of God to expose the sin in his heart and smites the conscience so that the sinner understands and even feels the weight of his guilt. 
and his lost and desperate condition. In response to that, the sinner cries out to God, confessing that the indictment against him is absolutely true, that God's judgment is right. And he throws himself upon the mercy of the court, pleading for something that he does not deserve, namely forgiveness of sins. And God then graciously grants a faithful and just forgiveness based on the horrible and bloody sacrifice made for the sinner by the Son of God on the cross. And what results is eternal reconciliation and sweet fellowship between the sinner and God. And that's the ultimate pattern of forgiveness. That's the ultimate example of transactional forgiveness. It's what it's all based upon. We see it both implicitly and explicitly throughout the New Testament and even the Old Testament as well. In fact, another key text to demonstrate this essential aspect of the Christian life is back in Matthew. And we're going to spend time on this next week, but you're all familiar with Matthew chapter 18. And you can look there just because I want you to see some of these key texts. Matthew 18, beginning with verse 15 And just this first verse, there's a whole section here that gives explanation about how to address these things, but the very first verse, (coughs) excuse me, sets up transactional forgiveness. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. There is a transaction that takes place. You go, you present the case. If he listens to you and repents, it's over. No one even has to know about it. And each of the two commit to a a transaction that says, I will not bring this up to you again, and I will not bring this up to God again, and I will not even bring it up in my own heart to fester and to think about, to meditate on again. It's done, it's over. That's transactional forgiveness. The point, beloved, is that we need to learn this. We need to learn how to do this. God has graciously given us the remedy for sin. He has graciously provided for us the remedy for all of life's problems that are rooted in sin. It's like the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan provides the vial of nectar for Lucy that when applied can heal any wound. And so the remedy of forgiveness applied to any sin will heal every guilty conscience. Think about what happens when we don't address sin in our lives the way the Word of God calls us to. I want you to turn back with me to the text we read earlier, Psalm 32. Because Psalm 32 gives us some explanation as to what we can expect and perhaps what we already see in relationships or in a person's heart singularly before God when sin is not addressed. Look at Psalm 32 verse 5. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, that is, when I did not deal with my sin, when I chose just to keep it and let it fester in my own heart, When I chose to keep silent about my sin, what happened? My body wasted away (coughs) through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. 
Yesterday, my boys and I and a couple of the other guys from the body came over to help me build a shed, and boy, it was hot. In fact, if my face looks red today, it's not because I've been deep in prayer. It's because I've been out in the sun wrestling with this shed. And I'll tell you what, after about two or three hours of being out in the sun, you're just dead. By the end of the day, I had to sit. I could hardly walk. And David is saying, listen, that's what happens to a person when there's sin in the heart that's not addressed. That's the way you feel. There's no energy. There are physical manifestations. In fact, you've heard the word psychosomatic. Let me tell you what that means. The prefix psycho is not a crazy person. It comes, P-S-Y, comes from the Greek word psuche. P-S-Y, psuche. And it means heart or soul. The other half of that word, somatic, comes from the Greek word soma, which means body. And so a psychosomatic illness is an illness that is appearing in the body, but the root is really the soul. There really isn't a physical explanation for what's going on. There's just something desperately bad going on in the heart. That's what a psychosomatic illness is. And don't throw that off as something that's not real. It is real. And it's always been real. Where there is guilt in the heart, there will often be external manifestations even in the body. I was talking with my dad this week. My mom began becoming uh, ill, and she didn't know what was going on. And, and her father died of cancer, and she convinced herself that she was dying of cancer. And she got really, really sick. And they had to do all kinds of tests. And the doctor came back and said, Mrs. Kirk, I have good news. You don't have cancer. In fact, we don't even know what the other issues are or where they're coming from. But here's what happened. As soon as she found out she didn't have cancer, the anxiety was lifted and all the other things corrected themselves. Isn't that amazing? That's what a psychosomatic illness is. And that's what we see here in Psalm 32. We see David saying, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. And that's not the only thing he says. Look at the warning here in verse 9. He knows what this is like. I take it to mean, David is saying, listen, I experienced this in the past. And now I'm exhorting you. And this is my exhortation, verse 9. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding. Don't be like I was, acting like a dumb ox. We all know what sin does in our heart and in our lives, in our bodies. And yet we're stubborn. We don't want to deal with the issues the way God wants us to deal with these issues. And we end up being dumb. We end up acting like a stupid ox that needs to be led around or a horse needing to be led around by a bridle or the owner can't get it to do what he wants it to do. Don't be like that. In verses 10 and 11, he says these words, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And so here's David. He starts out by saying, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. But let me tell you what a curse it is 
to be silent about your sin and not address it in the way God intends for you to address it. Not to apply the remedy of sin is a horrible situation. And you will feel it in your life. You will feel it in your body. And you will feel it in your relationships. And now again in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, we read, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And by the way, turn with me to James chapter 5. I'm just trying to show you that this is all over the Bible. James chapter 5. This is a key text, and I think it's largely misunderstood. James chapter 5. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of his church, and they are to pray over him. By the way, we did this with Jane Oliver this week. And what a blessed time of fellowship that is. Whenever the elders get together to go to a brother or sister who's struggling physically, and to go and obey this passage and pray over them, and that's what this scripture tells us to do. And then must call for the elders of the church and there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they are to be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you will be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. What's he, what's he saying here? He's saying this, there are different kinds of root causes for illness. There is disease, there is injury, yes, but then there is the illness caused by sin. And we need to be aware that sometimes illnesses in our body are caused by sin, not all the time. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper and he said, some of you come in an unworthy manner to take the Lord's Supper and for that reason, some of you are what? Sick. You're sick. In fact, some of you have died because of that. It is a physical issue that has stemmed or is owing to a lack of purity in the heart a lack of forgiveness, a guilty conscience because of sin. And so, James is saying, listen, if any of you are sick, here's the appropriate thing to do. Call the elders of your church and let them come and pray over you. And this is what they're going to do. They're going to come and they're going to bring oil. Now, it's interesting, and I don't want to get too deep into this. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this because people think that this is some kind of ceremonial service kind of drawn from the Old Testament. And there is such a thing in the Old Testament. And there are clearly delineated words to indicate that when it speaks of anointing. This is not that word. This is a different word when we're talking about anointing with oil. This is not that same phrase. It's not the same word. The word here means to rub or to massage, or to apply liberally, as in the case of medicine. Most of the medications of the first century were oil-based herbal rubs. Like uh, in sports medicine, often they'll take a, uh, a, a kind of oil and massage muscles and do things for people who are in, in, in uh, athletics. It was the same kind of thing. And James is saying, bring the elders, 
have them bring the medication, really, medication, and do two things, medicate appropriately and pray, and do this. When you pray, do not be afraid to address the issue of sin. Address the possibility that there might be sin here as the root cause. And address that. And so he says, if anyone is sick, he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins. You understand that? The prayer of faith, the prayer that says, Lord, I agree with what your word says about my heart, that it is sinful and I have sinned. That prayer will result in what? Forgiveness, forgiveness. And the one who is sick will be restored and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, there it is again, they will be forgiven him. And here it is a third time, verse 18. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Now listen, folks, this isn't, hey, let's designate a time, we'll meet at a restaurant and everybody come and tell everybody else your sins that week. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's biblical. I think that stirs up temptation in other people. Just like the law becomes complicitous with sin. So I didn't know what covetous was. I didn't know what covetousness was until the law came and says, thou shalt not covet. And now I want to covet. The law becomes complicitous with sin. This is uh, basic doctrine out of Romans chapter 7. And it's the same thing. Paul says these things should not even be named among you. They shouldn't be going on among you, and they shouldn't even be talked about among you. But if you have sinned against a brother, confess your sin. Confess your sins to one another. Don't hide your sin. When you have sinned against a brother and he comes to you and says, you've sinned. I think you've sinned. Do you see that? Confess it. Say the same thing that the Word of God says about that. And that'll be good for you. That'll be good for you. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of the righteous man can accomplish much. Sin is a serious, serious issue. And it has all kinds of ramifications in our lives and in our relationships. Jay Adams writes these words, Unforgiven sinners are vulnerable people. They often become intensely self-conscious. Even innocent words frequently are interpreted as personal attacks. They interpret as personal affronts, acts that have no direct relationship to them. A guilty person may claim that a sermon was a personal attack. Or lacking the courage to do so will object to some incidental feature of a sermon or some supposed slight of the minister. To call such a person paranoid is to misinterpret the dynamics of his problem. On the other hand, a man at peace with God and with other men is invulnerable and can be as bold as a lion, end quote. Why? Because his conscience is clean. He's continually dealing with the sin that corrupts his heart. And so he is free. Beloved, unresolved sin is at the root of every conceivable conflict and evil. 
But when the remedy of forgiving grace is applied through transactional forgiveness, healing, restoration, and reconciliation almost miraculously appear. It's amazing. It's amazing what happens when a husband and wife who are at odds with one another sit down at the table and say, I'm not going to offer any defense. Let me tell you how I think I've sinned against you. And if I miss anything at the end, would you please tell me that I can confess it and we can be restored? It is almost miraculous. And this is what transactional forgiveness is all about. But remember, there are four kinds or four aspects of forgiveness that we need to learn. The second is called attitudinal forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness. Now, the question that needs to be answered here is, what does an obedient, spirit-filled believer do when a brother or sister does not respond well to a just and gentle rebuke? What do you do when you follow the pattern of Scripture and you go to your wife or to your husband or to your brother in the church or wherever, and you present your case and the brother doesn't respond biblically? They get mad or they turn, turn away from you. They shun you from uh, their little culture or whatever. They won't speak to you. They won't return your calls. What do you do then? What if he has clearly caused an offense but is unwilling to own it? What do you do? Well, the salient principle here is rooted in Mark chapter 11. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is an interesting passage of Scripture because it forces us to realize that it's not every case that transactional forgiveness is going to work because both parties have to have humility. Both parties have to deal with things graciously. Both parties have to have an eye on grace to keep their hearts encouraged and an eye on their sin to keep them humble. You remember one of my favorite quotes, Thomas Watson, Puritan, said, better is the sin that humbles you than the duty that makes you proud. And so when two people are walking in the Spirit and they've got one eye on grace and one eye on their own sin that these issues are dealt with very quickly and other people don't even know about it. But what happens if the other person is unwilling to address the issue biblically? What if they're unwilling to own their sin? Well, the beginning of the matter starts here in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus says, whenever you stand praying... Whenever you stand up to pray, now it doesn't have to be standing, it could be sitting, it could be uh, lying down on your face, it could be in church, it could be at home, doesn't matter, that's not the issue. Whenever you come to God to speak to him, if you have anything against anyone so that, uh, excuse me, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. I skipped the most important word. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. And this is an important text, and I want you to notice with me that there's no transaction here between the one who has been wronged and the one who sinned against him. No, the scenario here involves one solitary believer with his God. There isn't anyone else around that we can tell. Or at least the party who sinned against him isn't there. 
And here's a brother who is standing perhaps in a worship service or at a prayer meeting. Perhaps he's on his own favorite quiet place for prayer. And he's standing with his arms lifted to heaven to commune with fellowship with the Lord. He has recently been stung by a sinful word or action from a brother. What is his responsibility then? In this case, the responsibility of the one who's been sinned against is simply to forgive. You forgive from the heart. You forgive. But he's not to forgive in a transactional manner, but in an attitudinal manner. In other words, he is to have a gracious, forgiving spirit that does not hold his brother hostage for the wrong that was committed. Now, it's important to make a significant, a significant point here. What is the purpose for transactional forgiveness? If I'm the one who sinned against and I come to my brother and say, you've sinned against me, brother. If I follow the pattern, it's not for my personal well-being. It's not to bring about closure so that I'll feel better. That is not the purpose. There isn't anything in the word of God that's designed to feed your sense of injustice. It's not about you. You are to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And if there's anything left over for you, good. But the whole point is that brother who has sinned has got something going on in his heart. And if somebody doesn't say something, it might stay there. And Psalm 32 may very well be that brother's experience. I love him too much to allow him to do that. This isn't a matter of bitterness. This isn't a matter of, I feel bad about the way you treated me. I deserve better. I'm your husband, or I'm your wife, or I'm your elder, or I'm your boss, or whatever it is. I deserve better than that. No, that's not what transactional forgiveness is meant to accomplish. It's meant to accomplish the forgiveness and reconciliation of the brother to God primarily. And if it works out that that happens, then the natural fruit of that will be restoration with me as well. Has to be. And so when it comes to attitudinal forgiveness, bitterness is not even a part of this. It's not about me, transactional forgiveness. It's about the other brother. But when we get to attitudinal forgiveness... We are standing alone before God. And we know that God does not allow for us to harbor anything in our hearts against a brother or sister or wife or mother-in-law or parent or child or anybody else. That is not allowed. That's what Jesus is saying. With regard to you personally, as you stand before God, without, the, without regard to the person who sinned against you, you must forgive. Forgive. In this case, the responsibility of the sin one sinned against is simply to forgive. As I said last week, there is no such thing, listen, there is no such thing as transactional forgiveness without repentance. There is no such thing as transactional forgiveness without repentance. In other words, the transaction that God requires for full and complete reconciliation requires that the sinner repent. That's true. To tell someone, I forgive you, when the sinful brother 
does, has not asked for forgiveness is to dilute and to ruin the remedy for sin that God has established and to do further harm to the relationship. Transactional forgiveness requires repentance, otherwise the transaction is left unfinished. But what do I do in that situation when I've been sinned against and the transaction is incomplete? Jesus is saying, you do have something to do. Forgive from the heart, not transactionally. You're not allowed to do that. But before God in your heart, let it go. Forgive. But brothers, there's a danger here. There is a danger here. The person who has been sinned against is in the immediate danger to fall into the sin of bitterness. And when that happens, the original injury is compounded and doubled. First, there was the harm done to him by the one who sinned in the first place. And then there comes the malignant disease of bitterness that begins eating away inside of him. And so now the injury is compounded. Now it's coming from two sources, without and from within. I cannot be allowed. That cannot be allowed. And by the way, God makes no allowance for that, and he explains that in his word. What is the remedy for the sin of bitterness? If the other person refuses to acknowledge his sin, and I am called to forgive anyway in an attitudinal heart sense, what does that look like? The remedy for the sin of bitterness is the healing nectar of attitudinal forgiveness. When you stand to pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone. And notice, this is not just offered by Jesus as some psychological, trendy kind of new idea that you could either take his advice or leave it, depending on what perhaps you think is good for you. No, for the believer, this is commanded. This is a command. And it's followed by a warning, namely that your relationship with God will certainly be disrupted if you don't forgive from the heart. We are simply not permitted to indulge the sin of bitterness. And it is a sin. It is a sin. We are not permitted to indulge the sin of bitterness in response to someone else's unacknowledged sin against us. But you know, it's real easy to play Russian roulette with this command. It's very tempting for us to say, oh, I've forgiven from the heart, when clearly we have not. Clearly we have not. You see, the word of God doesn't just command us to do something in the secret recesses of our hearts that nobody else can see without giving us an external litmus test for those closest to us to discern whether or not this is really taking place. How do we know if it's really taking place? I forgive him from the heart. Well, how do I know that? Well, I've forgiven him from the heart. Well, how are you demonstrating that? How do we know whether we or someone close to us is responding to sin, either with attitudinal forgiveness or bitterness? The answer is given to us in Galatians chapter 5. Turn there with me. This is an important study. Galatians chapter 5. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know where I'm going.
verse 22, and we could all probably quote it, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, before we get into this verse, I want you to understand the context. And we have to understand the context in order to understand this text, right? Because context is what, class? King. Context is king. Context is going to tell us what the whole point is. Why is Paul even talking about these things? Well, the church of Galatia was experiencing some relational conflict in their midst. We know that because Paul addresses it in chapter 5, throughout chapter 5. For example, in verses 13 through 15, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What was the problem? They weren't serving one another. They were being proud. They were demanding their own rights. Through love, serve one another. Don't use your freedom as a cause for violating one, one another's hearts and censoring one another's behavior. Clearly, people were violating God's command to love their neighbor as they love themselves. In fact, verse 15 tells us that they were biting and devouring one another. Look, verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by each other. This is spiritual cannibalism. It's nitpicking. We're not even talking about sin here. We're just blowing the whistle every time we think somebody has stepped out of line. We have a critical, censorious spirit. And so anytime somebody does something that we think is not on the up and up or not according to the standards that we have set or according to the culture that's a part of our church, we blow the whistle and we go to him and we say, uh-uh-uh, you got to get back here. you got to get in bounds. And we're not even talking about sin yet. And so there was this critical spirit running through the community. No wonder they were having problems. And the cure that Paul offers is verse 16. But I say this, walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walk in the spirit. Walk in humility with your God. Walk according to the precepts that are clearly laid down in the word of God. And you will not be giving yourself over to the lusts and the desires of your heart. That's what's causing you problems. We know that because of James 4. Where do fights and quarrels come from? Do they not come from your lusts? You want, but you don't have. You ask and you don't receive because you ask from wrong motives. That's the cause. You're not walking in the Spirit. And then Paul offers a list of sins that were tempting the brothers. Look at verses 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're external and visible. They are self-evident, which are these. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, people who act like that go to hell. And you call yourself a church. People who act like that go to hell. 
because it reveals the condition of your heart. Is that what your life is characterized by? Can you look through this list and say, yep, that's me. They ought to have a picture of me right there. Then you're probably an unbeliever. You probably don't know the Lord because you're living in unbelief. In contrast to the fruits of the flesh, God gives us the fruit of the Spirit. And these are indicators that we are walking according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. And notice with me how each of the fruits have to do with relationships. That was true of the fruit of the flesh. Most of the fruits of the flesh were extraordinary by the fact that they occur only in the context of relationships. Not all of them, but most. But I find it interesting that in verse 14 of chapter 5, when Paul is talking about these things, he's saying, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve for one another. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. Now, don't look. If you were to fulfill the whole law of God in one sentence, what would it be? You know the answer to this, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, isn't that what Paul's going to put here? When I was going through this the first time, I think, looking through this and saying, wow, this is relational. This is, this is, he's really concerned about how these people are functioning in the body with one another. And then he comes to this and he says, the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. And I'm thinking, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Jesus said, right? Actually, Jesus said there are two commands. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest and the foremost, but there's a second that's like unto it, which is what? It's what he put in here. The whole law is fulfilled in this one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, if there is any indicator here that he's concerned about the relationships, this is it. And so he gives us this whole list, this bullet list of the fruits of the flesh. And by the way, parents, uh, you were in Sunday school this morning. I tried to give you a little practical help that if you're sitting with your child trying to figure out how to bring the Word of God to bear on their particular issue, but you're wrestling with where do I find those scripture, scriptures and uh, where, do I, where do I locate them? How can I find them quickly? My advice was go to Ephesians 4, the second half of that chapter, or the first half of Ephesians 5, because you find lists there that are very easy and only take you a minute or two to find perhaps the area that your child is struggling with in sin and then address it from the Word of God. This is another great passage of Scripture. And I've told you about this before. One time a couple of my boys were scrapping it out, and this had become kind of a, a pattern for them. And I sat down with them and I said, boys, listen, let's go to the Word of God. Let's talk about what the Word of God says. And uh, let's turn to Galatians 5. And one of the boys said, uh, oh, the fruit of the Spirit. And I said, no, no, no. Wrong list. Before that list is the fruit of the flesh. And I want you to raise your hand anytime when I read one that applies to you. I got about halfway through the list and their hands were going up all over the place. Why? Because this applies to us. This is relevant. This is practical. Idolatry, sorcery, perhaps not, but enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. These are the things that they were struggling with. These were the sins that were in the church. And worse, there was even drunkenness and carousing and immorality and impurity and sensuality and even idolatry and sorcery. But the Apostle Paul's not letting anybody off the hook here. 
And he's telling us, listen, how you relate to one another is crucial. You're either going to relate to one another according to the dictates of your flesh, the lusts in your heart, or you will relate to one another according to the Spirit of God who is in your heart giving you direction and giving you power to do everything that God wants you to do. And so when we're evaluating whether our hearts or the heart of someone else close to us is really engaging in attitudinal forgiveness, this is a great place to go. Because we ask the question, are we seeing the fruit of the Spirit? Because if you're really obeying the Word of God in terms of forgiving from the heart, knowing that this is not about you, you don't have the right to be bitter You have to stand before God on your own. And if another brother provokes you to sin, that sin is still your own. And you are accountable to God for that sin. So how should we relate to one another? With a forgiving spirit. Oh, I've forgiven from the heart. But how should that be manifested? Here's how it should be manifested. By love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, You see the relational nature of these? Let's talk about the first one, love. This isn't a feeling of love. Love is a many splendid thing. I feel lovely today. That's not love. Biblical love is I commit to being your servant because Christ has committed to being mine. I will put your interests above my own and I will not take into account the wrong suffered. That's love. What about joy? Joy is something that in a biblical sense only believers can experience. And when you're around that other person who has offended you and they're not repentant, can you be joyful? Can you walk in the joy of the Lord in that moment? What about the third one? Peace. This isn't a feeling of peace. This isn't, I feel so peaceful today. The sun's out. You know, the winds are calm. It's kind of cool out. I feel peace. Everybody's feeling good toward me. I'm feeling good toward everybody. So I'm at peace. No, this is not the peace that passes all understanding. That is a biblical sense of peace. This is peace between brothers who ought to be otherwise at war. Who in the natural realm would be at each other's throats. But it's not happening. Why? Because the Spirit is ruling in their hearts. And so where there otherwise would be conflict, there is peace. And what about patience? There is no such thing as an independent feeling of patience. We all know that. This is patience. When you do something I don't like, whether it be sin or not sin, I'm going to be patient with you. And by the way, we know that generally speaking, Paul is talking about, at least in the church of Galatia, they're nitpicking each other on issues that weren't necessarily sin because in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. Even if they really sin. But how do you relate to a person who's sin and unrepentant? These ought to be the marks of your life. What about kindness? What about goodness? What about faithfulness? What about gentleness? What about self-control? All of these things ought to be exhibited in our behavior and in our attitude, even toward a brother who has sinned against us and is unrepentant. 
Now, I know there is some additional information in Matthew chapter 17 about what to do when a person is sin and unrepentant and you end up bringing them before the church and you kick them out of the assembly. What do you do then? Well, there are some clear parameters. You're not allowed to eat with them. You're not allowed to worship with them. But you need to be gentle and you need to be patient and you need to be loving and you need to be gracious and you need to be kind. All of those things still apply. And notice with me the very last phrase of this text that I suspect few of us understand and few of us have really wrestled with in terms of its application. Paul concludes this list of the fruit of the Spirit by writing these words. Against such things there is no law. Against such things there is no law. Here I think the best way to understand this phrase, Paul Uh, Paul's concern seems to be that we might either find in God's law or invent on our own unstated law something like this. We might invent a new law that says this, that brother who sinned against me, when I confronted him about it, seeking transactional forgiveness, he blew me off. Can can you believe it? I mean, he's not not humble. He's not going to deal with his sin. He's not going to seek restoration. Now, it wouldn't be right for me to establish or or, or to be especially loving toward him right now. He might get the impression that the issue is closed with me, that the transaction is complete, that there isn't anything further to address here. And so I got to be careful when I'm around him. I shouldn't be especially loving. Or we might say, next time I see her, I'm not speaking. She's getting the cold shoulder until I get an apology. Folks, that's nothing but manipulation. We might say, wouldn't it be wrong to act like nothing is wrong? And so I'm just not going to speak. Or I'm not going to express any joy in the Lord around that brother or be especially kind or speak to him in a gentle tone. He might misunderstand my motive. And so we invent these new laws. And so the Apostle Paul goes through the list of the fruit of the Spirit, and he gets to the end, and he said, there ain't any law against these. Show me the law. Show me where God said, don't be gentle. Show me where God said, this is the appropriate time to be unloving. It's not there. It's not there. Show me that law. Show me the place where God says, if a brother sins against you, start being impatient, unkind, harsh, or disconnected. Keep punishing him until he repents. There is no such law. But this is how we often act, isn't it? Someone causes an offense and we wear it on our sleeve. And we put on the long face. We change our tone in conversation so everyone knows something's wrong. We disconnect. We act differently. We want people to say, brother, what's wrong? Sister, I sense that there is something about you today that is forlorn. And that's exactly what they want when we act like that. Brothers, sisters, can I be a little bold here? The New Testament has a word for that kind of behavior. It's sin. It's sin. 
It's a sinful strategy for dealing with an offense that does not come from the Word of God. But that's how so many of us believers deal with sin. Somebody's caused an offense, forget about all these passages. I'm not to deal with this. I'm not speaking until I get repentance. I'm going to withhold what you want until I get what I want. That's manipulation. And so we give the cold shoulder, the silence treatment, the go-ahead-and-sleep-in-the-doghouse-for-all-I-care attitude. And all you're really doing is responding to sin with sin. And now the brother who now has an issue to deal with before God is not the only one who has an issue. Now you have issues, not only to deal with before God, but before the one who sinned against you. And now it needs to be a mutual repentance. And so what do you do if someone slaps you on the cheek with some kind of word or action? Here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain, that's a good thing, on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you... What reward do you have for that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That's Jesus. What's he saying? Look, the Gentiles can act like that. Any unbeliever can act like that. But only a person who has the resident Holy Spirit can bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So bear it if you belong to him. Turn the other cheeks mean... Turn the other cheek means we do not repay wrong for wrong. Rather, we respond to sin in a mature and Christ-like way. When the opportunity is right to address the issue privately, we do pursue transactional forgiveness. And we don't grant forgiveness until the transaction is complete. But whether the offending party responds well or not, we keep on walking with the Lord, exhibiting before all men, even the offender, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's a high calling. And it's only possible as we are walking in fellowship with God. You find yourself responding to people with the prayer, God, help me not sin with my mouth. I don't want to be complicitous with what just happened. Help me, Father. If you don't help me, I'm lost here. I am going to sin here. Lord, you've promised to be my mighty fortress. You said that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and those the righteous run to it and are safe. God, protect me from my own heart. God, protect me from the devil right now because I'm being tempted to sin in response to sin. And I don't want to do that. We've got to learn this, people. We've got to learn this. And who knows what kind of undeserved kindness and graciousness. It may just be the thing that the Lord uses to bring the offender to repentance. 
Your undeserved kindness is grace to them. That's the definition of grace. Say, I'm not going to do that. They don't deserve it. That's what grace is, undeserved favor. And so we act toward them in the fruit of the Spirit, knowing they don't deserve this. That's fine. The Lord knows that. But I have responsibility here. And who knows that God may use your undeserved display of kindness and gentleness and patience with them, not demanding that they repent on your time, but giving way to the grace of God and the sovereignty of God that he will bring them to repentance on God's time? How do we know that that will not be the very means of grace that God uses to draw them to repentance? I was thinking about this this week because I think it is just like the unbelieving husband in 1 Peter 3.1. You remember that? The unbelieving husband who lives in constant disobedience to the word and yet is one to Christ. How? Without a word by the chaste and respectful what? Behavior of his believing wife. You see, it all fits together, beloved. This is the Christian life. And it is a very high calling. And if we're not walking in the spirit and living in the word and drinking the water of life and eating the bread of life every single day, we will not have what it takes to do this when the time comes. When we're up at bat and we didn't expect to be up at bat, but now someone has sinned against us and now I have to respond, but I haven't been training, I haven't been practicing, I haven't been asking the Lord to prepare me for that, then you're going to be hitting foul balls. You're going to be striking out. It doesn't have to be that way. Peter is saying that God may very well use the fruit of the Spirit in that that believing woman's life to bring her husband to genuine, listen, genuine transactional forgiveness with God and his wife. But one thing is for certain. He will not use her sin to do that. Understand that? He's not going to use our sin to bring them to repentance. But he may very well use your gracious godliness and holiness. You've heard me say before, my wife always reminds me, honey, grace always wins. This is the theology behind that statement. And so don't respond sin for sin, tit for tat, When you are sinned against in a way that breaks fellowship between you and another person, whether it be your wife or your friend or someone in the body or at work, address the issue privately. Address it tentatively. Address it graciously. And calling them to the joy of transactional forgiveness, and it is a joy. And as you wait for that transaction to conclude, commit yourself to the kind of genuine attitudinal forgiveness that is evidenced to all by the sweet fruit of the Spirit. One of the ways I love to describe the fruit of the Spirit is like this. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is something that the Spirit grows on your life, but it's not for you to eat. The fruit of the Spirit is produced in your life for others to come and be refreshed. And one of the questions I left you with last week was, what do we do if the person who sinned against me has died? 
Well, obviously, you cannot call for transactional forgiveness. Uh, there are some psychologists, psychiatrists, who almost do a necromancy kind of thing, bring, try to you know, bring back the spirit or pretend that the spirit of that person is back and interact with the spirit, and I'll be the spirit if you want me to, and you interact with me as if I were your dead father, and I will ask you for forgiveness, and you grant forgiveness, and this will be done. No. That's dangerous, and that is forbidden by the word of God. What should you do? Well, if necessary, confess your sin of, for, of uh, bitterness and forsake it. And remind yourself how much you have been forgiven. And then, simply forgive. Let it go. Don't allow bitterness to dominate your thoughts about that person. Give them and their sin to God, knowing that he is able to address the issues infinitely better than you ever could. No sin goes unaddressed. No sin goes unaddressed. That is God's working in humanity. Every person will be held accountable for their deeds, either in Christ or outside of Christ, but every sin will be dealt with. Give it over to God. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that's easy. It is not easy. What I am suggesting is that the word of God calls us often to do things that are impossible. And then the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do it. May we be found faithful in doing so. Amen? Well... You're very gracious with me to be patient to go through this material. I've not gotten through all four points. We're two weeks into it and only two points. And so it will require another week. And so come back. The questions that I asked last week are still relevant. Is it ever appropriate just to say I'm sorry? I'll give you a hint. Yes, there are appropriate times, and I have a funny story to go with that. And I'll share that with you next week. Let's pray. Father.